You're welcome to come if you want to and meditate on what you've learned this year. It would be wonderful. Several of you have asked me, I know it's the end of the year and some of you are looking for ways to not pay taxes and yet you also <laughs> want to make charitable donations to something you really enjoy, something you really find meaningful. The Westminster class um, really has no budget. I kind of beg the church and then we have had several donors that were willing to donate extra for this class. So if you'd like to ear tag uh, money this year, uh, charitable to end up the year for Westminster class, uh, see me uh, or talk to uh, Pastor Dave. That's been done already by several of you and I thank you. John also teaches uh, through the Logos Institute if you want to support John's ministry himself and he didn't know I was going to say this but uh, we we do have this kind of open-ended relationship and uh, you can also make checks payable to, to Logos. Next January, next year, Dr. Lloyd from Kent State is going to start the year out. You may remember Dr. Lloyd. He's an instructor at Kent in religion and Bible. And, and he's kind of a literary expert. Uh, his background is more in that area. But he takes a very unique approach to biblical teaching. And I know that I've always found him extremely informative. Um, he kind of uh, opens your eyes to how the Bible was written, but also he's himself very devout in his belief, and, and he has a very unique uh, approach to teaching. So please come join us in January. Uh, and to all of you, I wish you a very happy holidays, a beloved uh, time with your family, and a happy new year. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. Uh, I think I'll just pray this morning because it'll be okay and then we won't embarrass anybody as I always do. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Today is uh, the first day of winter, the solstice, the shortest day of the year. And every day from now on, more light will be physical light will be coming into this world and we thank you this morning that what we're going to study uh, the incarnation uh, really reveals that to us that you have come into the world as the light of the world and John tells us that the light cannot be overcome by the darkness so your light continues to shine and as we actually live in a physical universe that kind of symbolizes that would you use the creation that you've given to us to remind us that your light is eternal and you have given that light to us so help us this morning as we consider these uh, amazing realities that you've revealed to us may your spirit teach us and we will thank you for all that you do for us in Christ's name amen all right, uh, well, we are going to talk about the incarnation this morning, and uh, I saved this one for the last, and uh, by the way, uh, uh, do you like this notion of the solstice, the solstices and the equinoxes? Does that make sense to any of you? Do you find it meaningful? Uh, I never paid attention to any of that stuff uh, when I was growing up, but now that I get older, I realize that it's really the internal rhythm and, well, a lot of things are happening to me as I get older, but uh, 
this is the the real clock of of our world, the the solstices and the equinoxes. So, uh, the 25th of December, selected by the early Christian Church to be the day that uh, we celebrate the incarnation. Why was that selected? It coincided with with an ancient, uh, famous Roman holiday, Saturnalia, which was tied up with the winter solstice. And, of course, the, if we would have been back there, um, we can't fault our, uh, uh, our fellow Christians that lived a long time. They did, just like we are living in a particular time and place and we uh, wrestle with and deal with our culture, they did the same thing. And so one of the things that they wanted to help people do was to move away from these embedded pagan feasts. And so they, uh, they did what? Uh, baptized them. They Christologized them. And, of course, we know now that Jesus was not born on December 25th. So it's not a, it's not a historically accurate date, but it's a symbolic date. So why did they choose that one? Yes, it was because of Saturnalia, but... What's happening? Yes. Yes, the light is coming back into the world. And so by the 25th, you've had the 22nd, the 23rd, the 24th, more light building. And so that seemed to be a great day to remind everybody that, yes, what happened in the incarnation is the beginning of the dawning of light that is coming to us all. So um, it used to bother me that December 25th wasn't historically real as his birthday. Uh, does it bother you? It doesn't bother me anymore. Now I can just say, okay, I know it's not historically real, but the fact is that it did happen historically, whether it happened in the spring or the fall, as some people think, the, the meaning is still there. Now I want to suggest to you that uh, the incarnation is God's ultimate prism. And what do we know that a prism does when the light comes into it? It refracts the la- light and the full spectrum of all the colors that are in light get displayed. I think that's true about the incarnation. It is the central way that God reveals to us all of the truths that are attached to the realities that God wants us to experience and to believe and know. So that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, the incarnation and how it relates to this whole course that we've had. Now, <clears throat> can we uh, take... Uh, the academic in me needs to do this, so can you bear with me? Uh, I created a cheat sheet for you, uh, a one-page condensation of everything that we've studied for the last seven weeks, and then including today. Uh, and so I hope it won't be boring with you, for you, uh, but I got a lot out of going back and reviewing everything that I studied and learned uh, to get ready to teach this course. And I want to start off with the first quote. Uh, the title is What I Learned in Sacred Science Selves. And uh, the more I learn, how does it end? <laughs> the more I learn, the less I know. That's not true. <laughs> the more I learn, <laughs> that's true sometimes. The more I learn, the more I know how much I need to know, or Einstein said, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I need to, to learn more. And you can play with it 
for however you want. Uh, the first youth group I ever worked with uh, back in the 70s on my birthday, they gave me a, um, a full-size uh, Snoopy. Uh, and on the front of it was, the more I learn, the more I learn how much I have to learn. I think they gave that to me because they sensed my growing pride. <clears throat> I never forgot that. I was 25 years old when they gave that to me. Okay, so I look back over um, everything that I've studied and we've studied together and I realize, um, yeah, I mean, we're just scratching the surface and you know, that's okay. Uh, God wants us to do the best that we can, so by no means was this course meant to be the, the ultimate answer, and I got a lot out of it. So let me just hit some of the high points that, um, that we studied together. Uh, let's start with the number, of, number one. We started back in November knowing how selves know, and remember we talked about the five different ways that most humans know, and we, we could have learned many different things from that whole uh, survey that we did, but the two that stood out to me was a renewed appreciation for Augustine and Galileo as two former Christians who lived at different times that were at the interface of science and the sacred. And what I got from what they helped us understand is know what you know and know what you don't know and know what you have to know to learn what you don't yet know. That's what Augustine and Galileo taught us, and I think that's really great wisdom for us in the 21st century, uh, even though they lived uh, uh, long before us. And then number two, we looked at, uh, and any, any of you, you wanna jump in here at any time, go ahead and tell me some of the things that you may have learned from these times. Uh, how selves know the cosmos. Uh, we spent some time studying Romans 1, do you remember? And we looked at the two main theories that contend for supremacy in the minds of people today in our world, and that is uh, naturalism or supernaturalism. And I gave you some formulas and all of that. I'm not gonna go through all of that today. But those two theories are really raging for uh, our attention. And uh, the way uh, uh, I came out with the resolution on this is Again, by looking at all of these things and all of the arguments, uh, the last sentence, if I use all five ways of knowing in the spirit, I expect to continue to learn how to go to heaven and how the heavens go. Who am I quoting? If I use all five methods of knowing, I can continue to expect how to learn how to go to heaven and how the heavens go. Who am I quoting? John no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, remember Galileo when he was, had it put to him and they were contending with him that your scientific discoveries are at odds with the scriptures and his solution or his answer, which he actually learned. Uh, he didn't come up with himself. This was told to him by one of his uh, superiors in the Catholic faith that the Bible tells us how to go to heaven and science tells us what? How the heavens go. And I have come through this course again by looking at all of the arguments and all of the contentions that surround the sacred and science with the belief again there's no reason for me to give up the sacred. I should use all five ways of knowing and I have the hope as I continue to do that that these differing 
spheres of knowledge will come together in my mind. I hope you learn that too. Number three, how selves know time. What did we learn about time together? Before I tell you what I learned, what did you learn? God's outside of time. We learned that from Psalm 90. So we learned what? With reference to the human framework of time, which is very concerning to us, especially when we start drilling into uh, purportedly the long ages of time that it took for God to build the universe, if you, if you embrace the modern scientific view, 13.7 billion years all the way down to the young earth view, all of these contentions. But what did we learn about God's perspective on this? Outside of time, so a thousand years with the Lord is like a day, which is just a metaphor, time is irrelevant to God. So if time is irrelevant to God, and the Bible tells us that, uh, it, set, it sets me free regularly uh, about these time contentions because I realize that the fo focus of the Bible is not when or how long, what's the focus of the Bible? Who? And so, we have the portrait of creation, we don't have exactly the uh, exact time dimensions, but we now find out, if we really think about it, that one day, or a million years, or a billion years, seriously, to God, is like what? It's, it's all the same. And that's hard for us to get our heads around, but that, I think, is a liberating truth. It's, it's hard. Now, does anybody want to say anything about that? You know, it doesn't really, and that's why I like it. Because when, when people who are fervent believers in the literal reading of the Bible and their faith, just like the medieval church, their faith was tied up with the structure of the text, right? And the, the literal days and all that. Um, when you really think about it, if one day is no different to God, than a billion years, then you can still ask the person that is holding on to the seven young earth, seven day, literal seven day theory, you can still ask them the question, but then why did God use time at all? Why would God have even used one day to make things? Does that make sense to you? Like, so what's more supernatural if God actually did it in seven well, actually, six literal days because the seventh, what? He rested. Okay, he stopped creating. Does that make sense to you? It, it doesn't make any difference. So that means that Christians are free to do what? You can believe the theory. If you understand that, you can believe the theory that makes the most sense for you. And the only, the only thing that we have to worry about in the 21st century is not giving up what? What's the one thing that we, as Christians, can't we give up? Well, uh, yes, we can't give up the resurrection, but if you're going to have a resurrection, you have to have something else before that. Uh, you know, you have to have a cross, that's right. You have to have the sovereign plan of God, and you have to have, as part of the sovereign plan of God, you have to have what? A creation. So it had to have taken place somewhere in time. It took some time, but now we find out what? Once we understand who God is, 
Time is irrelevant, so it liberates us from a lot of these problems. So all we have to think about is what? Not so, it's fun to find out when and how, but what the scriptures are pointing us to is what? Who? Yes, sir. Well, thanks for bringing that up because, you know, I, 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 in passing, that day that we talked about that, I did mention the second coming. I don't know if you remember that because we went over to Second Peter 3 and I showed you that Peter uses that text with the day, uh, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. He uses it in relationship to the second coming because in 2 Peter 3, he depicts what will happen that people, as time goes on, people will say in mocking and sneering tones, where is this promise of the second coming? And we've waited so long, and ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything's been going on just the same way as it always has. And so there will be this cynical uh, attitude towards the second coming because it's taken so long. Right? Peter understood the dynamics of what was going on in the minds of people that were like criticizing the Christian faith. And you're right, they, they lived under the uh, belief that Christ's coming was, as they say, eminent, meaning it could happen any time. Now, now, before I answer your question though, what's different about them and us, if this is all true? We're living under the same uh, rubric that Christ could come at any time. Our problem is is that we're looking at when Christ could come at any time from merely a human point of view and what the scriptures try to do is flip it for us and ask us to do what? Look at this from God's point of view and to that end now I'd like you to go to 1 John chapter 2 and look at a passage. What time is it really from God's point of view? What really is the time? And uh, you'd want to be about chapter 2, verse um, uh, 18. And what does he say there? Little children, it is the last hour. So he wrote that. Now, when the Bible uses that kind of thing, now we've condensed from a day to an hour. So yes, they believed and lived that way that we should live our lives under the, under the premise that Christ could come at any time. How about, however, whose clock are we going on? From God's time. So again, this is why I find this to be so liberating because now it set me free to, I don't have to sit here and, and study calculating charts, chronology charts, and try to figure out as Christians down through the ages, and God bless them, I'm not faulting them, but the, the idea of trying to pit, put together exactly when t- the time would be that Christ would come, the end result of this has been what? <laughs> really made the beauty of the hope of Christ's second coming get 
obscured by a lot of numerical and chronological charts attached to it. And I think this is a more liberating way of looking at things that we have to flip over when God starts talking about time and look at it from his point of view. Yes. Here's an hour. And of course, the year of Jubilee that Jesus announced when he began his ministry, what was the year of Jubilee? It was the 50th year on which what happened for Jews if they kept it. It's historically contentious as to whether they actually kept it, but yes, well, think about it though. Every seventh year you were supposed to completely take off in, in the Jewish system. So you work six years, and the seventh year being a Sabbath year, you took <laughs> off, which meant that you didn't plant crops, which meant that you then had to do what? Put faith in God that God would provide for you in the Sabbath year, even though you weren't going to work. Now, just do the math. So seven times seven is 49. So the 49th year is the seventh year. It's a Sabbath year. So you're off that year too. Then you go into the Jubilee year, if you're lucky enough to have lived then, and guess what? You get a second year off. Isn't that sweet? You want to resume this practice? <laughs> well, that's the whole, where the whole deal of uh, sabbaticals for people like me came from, right? Every, you work six years, and those of you who are doctors and uh, physicians and lawyers, do you get a seventh year off? No, because academics work much harder, and they deserve it. <laughs> so that's where that all came. Now they, they changed it, though. That's way too much time. Now then when they give somebody a sabbatical, you only get half, you get a semester, and you're supposed to link that with your, va your summer vacation, and that's your sabbatical year. Having said that, when the master said, this is the jubilee year, I am announcing it, it was the, the announcement that it was the rest from what? The rest from your own labor, from your own work. You understand that? And because that's what the jubilee year was. Well, why could he announce that this is the jubilee year? Now I'm announcing to you that you no longer have to work. You're, because why? He was going to come and do the work for us by his death and resurrection to make us right with God. So that's why it's the, but it wasn't, and this is important, it wasn't a literal uh, jubilee year, it was the, the age of jubilee that he inaugurated. Does that make sense? Yeah. So these are the considerations of time. Let's go to number four. Uh, I'd say this was the one that meant the most to me during the whole course. I fell in love again with the anthropic principle, uh, which scientists and the sacred both agree on. Does anyone remember what the anthropic principle is? Aren't you glad this isn't for real? This could be, <laughs> this could be a final exam. You guys would be in here like dying right now. <clears throat> I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm saying, that, that, uh, I, I want you to um, experience the wonder of logos here. So, um, about the fourth line down, well, I, I'm going to read this one because I think this was 
this one was a lot of good stuff. We learned the exponential growth has occurred uh, in the number of cells that exist. Now, I put some numbers down there. In Jesus' day, how many people walked the earth? About 170 million. That's half of the people that are in America right now. That's how many total people were on the earth, 170 million. Uh, 1950, 2.5 billion. Now, 7 billion plus. Things keep going, 2050, 10 billion. So when you put this on a chart, it looks like what? In terms of population growth. From the beginning that when we first knew, when humans were here, we get to like the 20th century and it goes like, 20, 21st century, it goes like that. Now, the other thing that's been going on that we studied was Course, correspondingly, there's been, since we have so many more people, there's been a correspondingly exponential growth in computer power. And this is known as Moore's Law, and it says that the ability to compute with machines, computer power, the capacity for it doubles every two years. And that trend has been monitored. It's called Moore's Law. He, he was the co-founder of Intel. And do you know this law? Yeah, a little bit. And, and your work as a digital photographer and all that stuff, it would be fascinating to listen to you talk for five minutes about how things have changed just in the last 25 years in terms of photography, right? Overwhelming. Overwhelming. So what's happened is, is computer power has done what? Followed the same right about here, and it's doubling every two years. So uh, the net result is that uh, we collectively know a lot more than we ever have as a human race and also as individuals we feel like we're drinking water from a fire hydrant because it is overwhelming how many people there are and how many discoveries there are and it's just flooding us. Now, now that we understand the 21st century, the time that we're living in, we turned to the question of how do we explain a universe, a cosmos, producing creatures that have sentience, consciousness, the ability to think and reason, and also, as we look at the two alternatives, supernaturalism, that God or the Logos put this all together and put, as it were, fire into the equations, that's Stephen Hawking's phrase, or how do we explain a impersonal universe cooking for billions of years, moving, and then producing creatures that actually have sentience, that have logic, who can then look back on this entire impersonal process that no one guided and actually come to understand that. That was Stephen Hawking's question. Who put fire in the equations? And uh, the anthropic principle, now I gave you some time to think about it. What is the anthropic principle that comes to our assistance? What, what was that idea? Anthropic, uh, it means human. And we studied in that all of the scientists agree that the flow of the cosmos, if it had been even infinitesimally different than it is right now, that it never would have come to pass that what? That we would even be here or having this conversation. Now this is what scientists believe because it's in the inevitable flow of the universe once it gets started. So we're here today 
And the fact that we can think and talk and reason, it almost appears like what? That the universe had some sort of intentionality or plan to produce creatures that could then come to a place where they can look back on this whole process and understand it. That's known as the anthropic principle. It looks like we were designed to be or that the universe had some reason for us. And so then we struggled back and forth and of course that day we studied what? The concept of the logos. And uh, do you remember when we studied this, <coughs> what we studied about the term logos and where it comes from? And the words that we get in English from it. Logic, logistics, which implies intelligence, right? And all of the logies that go after all of the academic studies, the pro programs that we study or disciplines. So it means uh, organization and intelligence and knowledge. And of course, right there embedded in the Christian scriptures, John chapter one, in the beginning was the logos, the intelligence, the reason, the mind. So those are your options as we enter the 21st century. Who put fire into the equations? Did it just happen? Did the universe just produce creatures that have the capacity of sentience and self-consciousness and can look back on ourselves? Or did somebody actually put fire into the equations to answer Hawking's question, and that would be the logos? And the last one in that whole sequence was the end and scientific and sacred versions of the end. Uh, do you remember what Hubble's, Hubble's law is? <laughs> Edwin Hubble, Hubble telescope, He's famous for discovering, proving, convincingly showing through the light, use of light and spectrum and redshift tendencies, what did he prove? That the universe is expanding. It's no longer questionable. The universe is expanding and it's expanding away from it, e each other too. It's, it's growing. This is no longer contestable. And this is only in the 1930s that human beings discovered this. So the, Im the implication of it was what? When we discovered this, what happened? Physics dictates, the laws of physics say, the first law of physics says, <laughs> come on, you went to Wooster, what are you talking about? Yes. Well, actually, an object at rest will stay at rest unless it's okay, but then, you know, the. Then the second one kicks in, yeah. If, it, if, if something moves, it's because something else caused it to move. If the universe is expanding, then thus what? Something caused it to move. And of course, Fred Hoyle, who was the leading physicist of the day at that time, he, he believed in the steady state theory. He believed that the universe was just there. It has always been there. And he loved this theory because he was an atheist. And when he believed it, he could get away with or get rid of what? The notion of God. Because you could just posit an eternal universe and say it was in steady state. And Fred Hoyle is the one who came up with the term in mocking derision, laughing at this idea of an expanding universe. And what did he call it? Fred Hoyle, the guy who hated the theory. He named it. He's famous for naming the theory that he despised and hated. Bing, bang, yes. 
He, he called it mockingly the Big Bang because he wanted to believe that the universe was in a steady state and it had always been there. So then the math and the observations and then our famous Stephen Hawking took a few months out of his life with a bunch of brainiacs at Cambridge and crunched the higher math and figured out what? That mathematically, it has to be that the universe is expanding. Now it's non-disputed. So that led us to our scientific quandary. If the universe is expanding, then scientists say, what could possibly happen then? It could contract, and that's called, if, if uh, antimatter overcomes gravity, everything will contra contract. What's that called? The big, um, the big crunch. And then if gravity wins uh, and the universe keeps expanding, eventually what will happen? It, it will rip to pieces, and that's called the big rip. And if it just keeps expanding in, at the current rate that it does, it'll just go on forever and ever and ever and ever, and, and eventually it'll hit the place that's called what? No, zero heat, uh, heat death, and that'll be the big what? The big freeze. And I'm not gonna talk about the fourth one today because it's Sunday morning and it's too hard. Um, uh, the multiverse theory, that the universe just keeps spawning more and more and more clones, and this is, of course, the one that scientists really love right now because if you can believe that, then you can get away from the idea that there was an initial starting point of the universe, and if you can get away from that idea, then what? The idea that maybe the universe has just been popping and creating multiverses forever and ever, and you can go back and have your steady state eternal universe cake and eat it too. Uh, and so these are all swirling around. And then we compared that view of the, those views of the end with whose view? Well, we compared it to a, an analogy that the master made. Do you remember this? Uh, what did he say the end would be like? Birth pangs. Remember this? And he gives a bunch of listings, they're put into various heads, that you and I are supposed to look for of how, how things will come to pass near the end. And the beauty of his analogy is that birth pangs increase in frequency, intensity, and duration. These signs, he said, will increase in frequency, intensity, and duration. And then what comes after? Is it really the end? No, it's actually the beginning because you know we talk, we call this the T loss, the com the completion, but it's actually the entrance into the new age, the new birth. So, um, one of the things that I suggested to you, without being all fanatical about it, is if you go back and look at your handout that I gave you for that week, and you look at the ten greatest threats to life on Earth right now not talking about the big rip, the big freeze, the big crunch, but just the ones that are called anthropogenic, the ones that we cause, or the ones that we're dealing with right now. You look at the 10 greatest ones, you write them down, and then you go over to the book of Matthew and Luke, and you list out the birth pang signs, and without too much forcible uh, trying to believe, we're gonna find out what? A lot of amazing correlations. So that's something just to refresh your mind on that whole topic. And so now, does anybody want to say anything about anything else to, before we go on and do the last part today? Uh, 
the Hubble telescope was launched, I believe, in the early 80s. But don't quote me on that. About then, yes. So all of those awesome pictures that the human race has been getting back from and looking at things that we've never been able to see before. This has only been like one generation. We're, we're right there. It's amazing. Anybody else? On the course so far that we've studied. Pam? Oh, I'm sorry. What time are we in? Yes. Well, you know, of all that, and, and, but we have all that stuff behind that can help us pick that up. And the guy that I read a lot is he always says we miss that wonder, that mystery that's always inside of us. And maybe that's a lot of the stuff that we're doing right now. So, you know, who cares if we figure it out completely? Well, I think we've learned that we're not going to figure it out completely, but we want to try to do the best that we can with what we know without, you know, going beyond human limits. But so that's all that we can do. But the one thing I love what you said is the mystery and the wonder that's within us, and that brings us to today. What's the topic? The incarnation. What does, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So the incarnation is the ultimate event and uh, now I'd like you to flip your page over. The exam is over, and <clears throat> you can relax now. Uh, now you need a Bible, and I want to start off with what I consider to be not a made-up, but truly an embedded analogy that God has put in the scriptures for our uh, consideration. And you're going to need a Bible. So could you start over there on the left-hand column under Old Creation and find Genesis 1-3. I'm sorry, uh, Genesis 1-2, typo. Genesis 1 and 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of of Elohim, the Ruach Elohim, moved upon the face of the waters. Now, translations, moved, hovered, swept over. Swept over. Uh, now, that word, hovered, whatever they translated, hovered, swept over, uh, I put the Hebrew word there for you, rakoth. And it's only used twice in the entire Hebrew Bible. And I gave you both of the versions, or both of the verses. So what does it mean? How do we translate it? Now let's go to Deuteronomy 32.11 to find the other place where this word is used. The Spirit of the Lord was doing something to that water, hovering over it. Or okay, now let's uh, have somebody else read this one that would like to. 3211. Um, I'm going to get a couple of different translations. You got one, Ricky? Mm -hmm. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Okay, uh, what's the picture here? 
Let's have one more translation. Uh, that was a, who's got a modern version? Let's, Suzanne. As an eagle stirs up its nest and, ho- and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up, and bears them aloft on its wings. All right, now here's the word hover. So you get a picture of what? Uh, of a bird doing what? Roosting and fluffing up the nest and then hovering over it to to do what? To bring forth life. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 1-3. So now we have this picture of creation, of, of the entire world, the whole globe, and God's spirit is doing what? Hovering over uh, in a very maternal, motherly portrait of God as a giant. (laughs) We don't want to say it, do we? A giant. It's a picture. A giant eagle. We can do that one, right? A giant eagle over the primordial earth and doing what? Stirring it up and bringing forth life out of it, okay? So we have that analogy in the Bible. We're going to go down to the bottom when I say meaning. Pinions? Claws. But that's, that's just, you know, the depiction of it, what it uses to fluff everything up. Um... Okay, now let's go over to Luke 1, 35, unless you want to say any more about that. We got analogy number one, the original earth, and hovering over it like a giant eagle is the Spirit of God bringing forth life out of the primordial earth. Okay, analogy two, Luke one thirty-five. Could somebody read it for us? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay, now I put the Greek words in there, and I mean, uh, you asked me why I did that. I'm going to show you in just a minute. But... This answer of the angel is in response to what question? Since I am a virgin, virgin, how can it be possible you're telling me that I'm going to bear a child, I'm going to conceive a child and give birth to it? So she asked a very legitimate question, and we learn a lot from Mary uh, by doing this. She wasn't asking in unbelief. She was asking a, what kind of a question? A science question. <laughs> she knew science well enough to understand. No, I, I've seen how uh, baby animals are born. I know that this is not possible. I know enough about biology to know this. So the angel gives her an answer that is compatible with the faith and openness that she has because she's not challenging. She simply wants to understand. So what's his answer? How is it going to be impossible for you to have a child without having known a man. And what's, what's the answer again? What are the words that he uses? The Holy Spirit. So now we have a commonality because back here in the original creation, 
We have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Over here we have the Spirit of God that's going to do something supernatural again. And what does he say that the Spirit of God will do? Cover. Overshadow is a beautiful older rendering. But it, it literally means to come on something and then the second part, the overshadowing, means to build like a little shelter, uh, a, a tent, a covering over. In other words, Mary's womb is now going to become like what? Uh, eventually it's going to produce that, but what's the analogy here? Her womb is akin to what? The earth. And as the Spirit of God brought forth life out of this primordial mess that was going on, God's now going to bring life out of uh, a, a human being and install life in it, and it's going to be a supernatural event as well. So, beautiful analogy. This is the old creation. This is what? This is the beginning of the new creation. So Jesus' incarnation is the beginning of the new creation. It's the origin of it. Now, um, I'm going to save the last the passages on the bottom uh, until we do the next column. So now, what does this have to do with you and me? So now we're going to look up a series of passages on the right-hand side uh, called New Creation Now and Then. And the first one is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Uh, I guess I'll just read the rest of them today because we got mic, kind of mic issues here, so. All right. Now, he's talking about the logos coming into the world, but notice the responses here. This was the true light verse 9, that lights every human that comes into the world. He, meaning the Logos, was in the world, and the world was made by the Logos, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave to them the power to become the sons or the children of God, even to those that believe on his name. Now, what is John talking about here? He's talking about the, the incarnation has occurred, the Logos has come, and he's depicting various responses that happened as a result of his entrance into this world. So response number one was they didn't know him. So he's referring to who at that point? Who did not know him when he was here? Jews. Oh no, the Jews knew him. Who didn't know him? The Romans, right? I mean, Jesus was just some bit player in a Middle Eastern uh, colony that they had to take care of. They didn't know him. Uh, they knew about him to a certain extent, but he was irrelevant, not, not the way we would think. They didn't really know him. He came to his own. Who's his own? That's the Jewish people. And when he says they didn't receive him, you understand qualified. He, he doesn't mean all Jews didn't receive him. Many Jews received him. He means, in general... Many Jews did not receive him. Now we get to the important part. What's, what's relevant to you and to me? 
but to as many as received him, what happens to them? Okay, so this is faith and receive are used as synonyms here. So to receive Christ is to embrace him, to take him into your existence, to take him into your life. And what does he say happens when any human does that? Something happens. They become, okay, children. Now, I'm trying to use the generic here. I know he uses sons. Understand the culture of the time. So, now let's put all this together. Well, now let, no, no, let's go forward. So now let's go to the next one, 1 John 3, 9. Let's do these real quick, and then I'll weave it all together. 1 John 3, 9. We need somebody with an old school translation here, like a King James or... Well, let's try yours. Those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. Okay, what does he say is true about people that have received uh, Christ? He uses a curious phraseology here. God's what? Seed. In Greek, guess what? Sperma. So he's making an analogy here, and he's saying that your soul is sort of like what? Yes! (laughs) So that would make your soul, that would make the human soul sort of like I know this is going to be hard for some of you men, but it'll go, it'll go down. It's sort of like what? Mary's, Mary's womb. Your soul is. So that when by faith you receive Christ, the analogy is, is that God does what? Puts God's seed in you, which is God's zoe life, which is the essence of God, and what happens when seed and egg combine in the natural world? Yeah, so the Spirit of God impregnated Mary, if you want to look at it that way, not sexually, obviously, cloned, put the logos into her egg, and life came to be, and so then when it comes over to us, what does God do? We don't have the life of God inside of us, so what does God do? It's so hard for us to say it. We don't want to think about it. God impregnates you. Impregnates your soul with the life of God, just like Mary was. You say, no, that can't be true. Okay, go over to Galatians 4.19 now. This is how blatant the analogy is. The Holy Spirit is the one impregnating people today, not exactly the same, but akin to the impregnation of Mary and Jesus. 
And I'm making the analogy that what did the Spirit of God start at the beginning of creation? Pictured as a bird doing what? Bringing life out of something. And then a bird that comes and visits Mary, a dove. We know that the Holy Spirit isn't really a dove, but symbolically, he comes and installs the logos inside of her and impregnates her. And then, now that the incarnation has taken place, it switches over to us. So, what did we learn so far? By faith, when we receive Christ, we become children. And then the New Testament draws out the analogy. It says, well, first of all, you get impregnated by the Spirit. And then what does Galatians 4.19 say? My little children... Okay, until I for whom or with whom I am again in travail until Christ is formed in you. Now, let's unpack this language so we can understand it. So he's talking to Christians and he's saying to them, I am in travail, I'm in birth pangs with you for how long? until Christ is formed in you. Now, who are the people that function in society that experience vicarious birth pangs? What are the, <laughs> the husband, okay. But there's actually people that, there, there's a name for them. They're called doulas, right? You don't know that one? They're, they're midwives. They're, this, is a, this is hot in our society today. Many people are having babies at home. So you have a doula who is trained, a D-O-U-L-A, and don't ask me the etymological uh, source of it. I don't know. I just know that's the name, doula. I think it means servant, actually. So they are midwife and they help. So when they're helping the baby get born, inevitably, what do they have to do? Well, yes, they deliver, but they're involved in the entire process. They have to experience the entire pregnancy, the whole birth, vicariously, right? And in a sense, they are what? Travailing with the person to help the baby come out. So Paul here likens himself to a doula. He's the midwife. What does he want to see happen? A successful, full-term pregnancy come to its fruition, and thus what? Christ would be fully born in that person. So here's a, so if you're a Christian here today, how are you supposed to view yourself? You're pregnant. And what's happening because of the fact that you received Christ and God's life, God's seed, God's zoe was put into you, what's going on right now inside of us? Christ is being formed in us. And of course, that's the whole point of the incarnation. God became one of us so that what? We could become one with God. It's a supernatural phenomenon. So, what do you think about this analogy? What's a 
What? What's the proof of that? The proof? Oh, what do, what do you look for? Yeah, what am I exhibiting that shows that? that? Have you ever read um, this brilliant book called Beyond Beliefs? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, I try to get at it a little bit in that book, but... Um, I mean, is it just a personal feeling? No, no, the New Testament now, and we have two minutes before you guys go, so let's answer his question. So what's the proof? Um, we have an image of God bringing forth life out of the universe. We have an image of God actually entering into that cosmos now and becoming one of us. And now we have God creating new life within all those who receive Christ. What would you look for over here? What, yes. Well, we were, one, one manifestation will be that we will be compelled to view the spirituality. We won't be able to help it. There'll be something... Uh, God will put something inside of us, the spirituality, a spiritual gift, that w <laughs> I was just really kidding. <laughs> um, God will put a, a manifestation within us that is a supernatural ability. Could mercy, preaching, teaching, uh, healing, something that is unique to our configuration that will be the way God works. That's, that's a great one. But what's the one that the Lord said is un undeniable. It's as close as proof as you're going to get. This is how all people will know. The, what, now remember, he qualifies it. This is how all people will know you are my followers. If you love one another, not as you love your neighbor, because we know that where that ends. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, if you don't love yourself very well, then you're not going to love your neighbor. It, I mean, it, it works if you're a healthy, integrated person, but if you're not, he changed it. He raised it. If you love one another as I have loved you, so really, if you want the heart and essence of your answer, the heart of everything is this kind of love, agape love, God's love, God's sacrificial love, the kind of love that caused the incarnation to happen, that God would become one of us. That same love, Christ's love, has been put inside of everyone that receives him. And if we let Christ have his way, none of us are perfect, but what should be the characteristic sign that we would look for? This kind of Christocentric agape love. Is it proof? No, but I remember what some hardened college student, very brilliant, went to one of the best college, Christian colleges in the country, 150 IQ, philosophy major. He sat and told me one day at uh, the big rock concert that uh, happens here, a Christian rock concert, what's it called again? Alive. He said, you know, I, I think uh, all this Christian uh, theology and everything is basically infantile nonsense. But when I hang out with Christians, it f sure feels good when they love on me. <laughs> so what does that tell us? Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. So I hope in this course that you did get some answers, but if you want to talk about proof, it's not proof, 
but the single strongest, most incredible witness that any of us can give is to let the agape love of Christ have its way with us and give that to other people. That's what changes people's hearts. Hey, it was great to study with you. And I hope it was good for you. I learned a lot. God bless you. Have a wonderful Christmas. And I'll see you again uh, next year. Sometime. Hopefully.